Church, if you would turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. <clears throat> this is the last time you, well, the last time, at least this week, you'll have to listen to me try and pronounce these names. Um, but uh, thank you for your graciousness. Uh, it would be very nice to me as I attempt. I've got a lot of temptation, okay? You know what I mean by that. All right. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, let's start in verse 1. We'll read the entire chapter. It's a big one. A lot going on here. I just want you to remember a little bit about what we talked about last week, joy, celebration, all this sort of stuff. And then, uh, here we are now in Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> the Word of God says, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water to hire Balaam against them to curse them. However, God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Verse 4. Now prior to this, Elisha, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers in the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, the tithes of grain, the wine, the oil, the scribes, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the contributions, the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem for... 32nd year, Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. And after some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil of Elisha had done for Tobiah. By preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God, it was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Verse 10. Also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and restored them to their post. All Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shilamiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, the Diah, the Levites, and in addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O oh my God. Do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed to the house of my God and his services. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. They brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, so I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. And I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? That you were adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came about that as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so, they, so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. And then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. 
And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath. For this also remember me, O oh my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Verse 23. In those days I saw that the Jews had married women, women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, have spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. And so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one, one of the sons of Jodiah, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Samuel, the Horonites. So I drove him away from you. Remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood in appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. We thank you for his word tonight, church. Amen. Brother Corey, come through some work. Good evening, church. Well, we're finally here. Nehemiah 13. I'll be there last week. In the book, but it's been a good study, hasn't it? I really enjoyed it. Um, obviously, I can't remember ever hearing a sermon from Nehemiah before this study. Um, so it's been it's been good to learn the story to grow from the truth in it. It's, it's just such a good book. My favorite thing is I just love how Nehemiah is so relatable. I feel like I can just relate perfectly to him. He's just kind of a normal guy. There's not a whole lot of formal training or anything. He's just out there trying to conquer something for God. But when we look at this book, isn't it just great to see his faithfulness through it? This is his constant faithfulness to, to Nehemiah, to providing a way for him to, to get to Jerusalem, providing a way for um, just the materials for the wall, the steadfastness while they built the wall, all the persecution they had to go through, and his faithfulness with his spirit working in the nation of Israel. And then ultimately, his faithfulness in, in forgiving the people as they look to him in repentance. There's just so much of God's faithfulness through this text. God had done a great work in Israel, there's no doubt. But the story doesn't end there. It's like we hit that really high climax last week with the celebrations and everything. But they failed to remain faithful to God. They failed to, um, to provide for His work. So coming to the conclusion of this book, it's really, it's a sad ending. What they were fired up, just, just even last week as we studied, what, everything they were excited about, ready to do for God, that, they thrown all that out the window. All that zeal, it was lost. They were beginning to repeat the cycle of sin, disobedience, and then punishment to come. We've talked about this before. It's, it's always quick to, to jump on Israel, right, and to judge them so, so harshly for their just blatant, obvious, and repeated mistakes. But like we've said time and time again, we're just like them. We're no better. We are Israel. We're not the perfect hero in these stories. We struggle repeatedly with the same things that they did. So let's keep this in mind as we go through this chapter. So Nehemiah was governor about 12 years, and then we see in, in verse 6 that uh, Nehemiah returns back to King Artaxerxes. 
doesn't really say why he did or even how long he left, but just that he was gone for some time. But upon, he, he has to come back, and upon his arrival back to Jerusalem, he's just devastated. He looks, he sees everything that they worked so hard to build just lost. Yes, the walls were still there, the gates were still up, but the people had no heart for God at all. The problem started with the leadership of the city, and it went all the way down to the working class citizens. The priests had just given up and left. The citizens were refusing to support the work of God, and instead of dedicating the Sabbath to grow closer to God, to remember His faithfulness, they are just working and carrying on business as any other day. But remember on Pastor Cody's sermon from chapter 10, there was, there was three specific things that they were committed to do for God. It's found in verse um, 30 and 31 of chapter 10. The first thing was that they committed to no more mixed marriages. This is marriages to, to pagan people, the people that did not follow God and had no um, intention of following His law. The second thing they committed to was providing for the house of God through their tithes and offerings. And the third thing was a commitment to honor the Sabbath. Um, so tonight through this chapter, we're going to look at three different aspects of Israel and Nehemiah here. Um, there's points of rebellion, points of restoration, and points of resolve. But through all this, I want us to see that we must have a closeness and a love for God and let that produce a separation and hatred for sin so we can walk through our lives in obedience. So let's start. Let's look at verses on, <clears throat> 1 through 3. It says, On that day they wrote aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing, so when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. So this is this is looking back to where we were studying in chapter 9 about where they, they heard the law read and they immediately responded with instant obedience of separating from all foreigners. <clears throat> this, is, this is something that they had signed that, that commitment, that covenant to God, and they were committed to staying this way, but they had fallen away. But what's so bad about the Ammonites and the Moabites? Doesn't it seem kind of harsh and mean to exclude them from the worship of God? So the Ammonites and the Moabites... They were a product of the city of Sodom and a product of incest. They were, they were the, the sons of Lot's daughter that they had with their father to carry on their family name because he had no sons. So this family, if you know anything about Lot and what we just talked about, like, they were jacked up from the very beginning, all the way going from Sodom. So it also points their attention back to Balaam. How they had used him to come curse Israel. Now, when we think of Balaam, we always think of like him talking to the donkey. So that was on his journey to go keep his curse on on Israel that he was hired to do. So, but he goes to curse them as Israel is coming out of Egypt across their land, and God put the words of blessing into his mouth for Israel. Moab is furious, and this just points out they weren't they weren't going out to help Israel. They weren't, it says bread and water, they weren't going out to, with any hospitality. They wanted them destroyed, they wanted them cursed. They weren't happy that they had exited Egypt. They were defying against God and his people, and nothing had changed to this point. They were the same. <clears throat> we saw their response in chapter 9 was an, was an immediate obedience and separation. And it was all because of God's conviction that he brought their life. Now, just to point this out, this wasn't... This wasn't about race. This was about keeping 
Faith in the Lord is of very utmost importance and about continuing in spiritual purity. These foreigners, from their very inception, were the enemies of God and His people. They wanted nothing to do with following down to His law. And it's, it's just basic question, why on earth was Israel trying to partner? Why were they marrying into these enemies, these people that had hated them for their entire history? What's to become of Israel and their future generations if they're going to continue on to mixing with these people? It's the same for us today as Christians. We know we're not supposed to marry someone who's a believer. We're actually going to touch on that a little bit later. <clears throat> but I want us to kind of look at the, at the heart of this principle. Let's look at these these pagan influences here, these Ammonites and Moabites, as, as kind of the, the culture and the worldly society that we're surrounded by. They promote and they celebrate just blatant and outright sin against God. This worldliness that we're, we're in is, is directly opposed to pretty much everything we're supposed to be as followers of Christ. But so many times, and, and even more than we realize, I think our, our lives, our beliefs, even our worldview is just it's intertwined with this godless society so much that we don't even see it sometimes. So we're going to see the consequences of this worldliness, of these mixed marriages, of this, this worldliness inside of Israel and the effects that it had on them. So the first thing I want to look at is the points of rebellion. The first of that is they forsook the purity of the temple. If you look in verse 4, it says, Now prior to this, Elisha the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for them, where formerly they had put grain offerings and frankincense, the utensils and tiles of, of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions of the priests. But during this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I had asked to leave the king and came to Jerusalem to learn about the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. So the first thing was the fact that Tobiah was living in the temple. Yeah, this is the same Tobiah that we talked about in verse 4 that was out there doing everything he could to stop the construction of the wall. This is the same Tobiah that couldn't prove his ties as a Levite and was thrown out from the temple. And he's now living inside the temple. Israel had just forsook the purity of the temple. They didn't care anymore. As we just read, he shouldn't even be allowed in there for worshiping. But here we find him living inside the temple. He used his connection through one of these mixed marriages to take over the storehouse room. So the room that was designed to provide for the worship of God is now being home to a heckler of God in his work. But Elisha, the priest, he was just as responsible to try to enforce his way in. And it's no doubt there's some kind of gain to be had for him. But this was a problem of the leadership and mostly a problem of them just losing sight of God. But again, before we judge them so harshly, let's look inward. How, how easy it is, is it for us to harbor sin in our own lives? As believers, it says that we're the temple of God, right? That we're bought with a price, that we owe God everything. But yet our flesh, it indulges in sin. Something that we know is our enemy, something that we know is, is God's enemy, we make room for it in our lives. We say, oh, it's just, it's just something small. It's not going to take up much room. Who's it really going to hurt? But we, we want to keep that sin in the back closet, don't we? But we're called spiritual purity to be sanctified, to be set apart for God's use, just like the temple was. Let us not leave any room in our lives 
for sin to come in and infiltrate our lives. This room was useless to God because the Bible is there. How much of your life is, is held back by sin? Something that we're refusing to let go of. What part of worldliness have we let in and sacrificed you for in our lives? And just think how your life would be different without that sin held up there. We're going to see how Nehemiah deals with it shortly. But next I want to look at how they forsook the support of God's will. <clears throat> you know, look at verse 10 here. It says, I also discovered that portions of the Levites had God been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Why is the house of God forsaken? Such a sad question in reality he had to come back and face, wasn't it? There's no reason for them to forsake that. It was unacceptable. God had been so faithful to these people. They had rejoiced greatly in his restoration of Jerusalem. He had been unwavering despite Israel's many failures. He deserved their devotion. He deserved their utmost attention. And now the temple is empty. This goes against the promise that they had just committed to in chapter 10. God appointed these people to stay in Jerusalem and serve, something they were doing out of, out of love, service, and duty to God. The tithe was meant to provide for the daily needs of these people, so they didn't have to go work in a trade or on a farm to provide for their family, but so they could give the work of God the utmost attention, and ultimately that would benefit the entire nation. But the tithes weren't coming in. There was no support for them. And they had no choice but to go provide for their families, or else they're just going to starve to death. And we ask, why did why did Israel forsake the time? Was it because of the evil living inside the storehouse? You know, that's a good possibility. But if we look at if we look at their other failures through this chapter, there's a pattern there. Maybe it wasn't because they just didn't trust the Bible. Maybe it's because they didn't care enough about God's work. They didn't care about keeping any of their other commitments. And it all stems back to that worldliness that they had let come inside. We'll see later that how they were they were just consumed with their commerce to the point of it <clears throat> replacing God in their faith. It's quite possible that they would just rather burn their wealth rather than give back to God. But we can in the States we can we can be very similar to what we came with. The American church is, is full of members that don't give tithes and offerings. When I took um, my pastoral management class in college, it's only about thirty percent of church members truly tithe. And, you know, as we've said time and time again, God provides for His church through His church. It wasn't it great to see that this morning? I know it's always awkward for churches to talk about money, right? Nobody ever wants to talk about it. Because there's the, like, all these, the pastor just wants our faith, and the church is going to misuse the money over here somewhere, or I won't get what I want done. But as a fellow church member, I just want to say this. We need to prioritize taking care of our church. Maybe we do tithe. Um, but as church members, we need to be excited about this ministry. We need to be we need to be looking for that growth to come in and giving accordingly to that. So much so that other people are going to get on board. We're not we're not throwing our money away into nothing. We're investing in the kingdom of God. God's it's not just about giving God money. It's about giving it in your heart. If you, put, if you put your heart into God's work, that, the giving is going to naturally follow. God's working in our church. He's working, he's working in our lives. He's working in our town. He's growing 
our ministry numerically and spiritually, and it's, it's great to be a part of that. So let's be faithful to give us these commandments. Let's value God's work on such a high level. But most of all, let's, let's be excited. Let's be those, those cheerful leaders knowing that He's working in our lives and in the lives of those around us. But Israel's heart, they, it wasn't like this. They were far from God. Nothing in their life was pursuing Him. They were consumed with themselves, and, they, and their giving proved it. The lack of giving wasn't because they were poor. As we saw in uh, verse 16, they had money to buy the goods at the... <clears throat> That they were importing on the Sabbath evening. The city was doing well economically. They just didn't want to support the house of God. And to say this, don't ever equate financial prosperity with the blessings of God. I know we tend to do that so much, but God's blessings are so much more than wealth to our life. He has God doesn't want us just to just to give money to us so we can have bigger houses and more cars and more toys. God wants to give us Himself. And ultimately, so, so we can serve him and so that we can serve others. <clears throat> Financial prosperity is not the blessings of God. Israel had forsaken the tithe, and because of that, the temple workers, they had to go back. And this just caused that slippery slope of falling further and further away from God and less influence of God in front of them. God just wasn't a priority in the lives anymore. <clears throat> so third thing I want to look at, at the reverence of the Sabbath and how they forsook that. So they forsook the purity of the temple, they forsook supporting God's work, and then they were looking, forsaking the reverence of the Sabbath. So this is a big one, right? This was a this was a huge distinctive of the Jews. This is what set them apart from everybody else, and this is even in the Ten Commandments. What makes this even more condemning, just like the other things, is this is in the big three of what they just committed to do. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 15 through 17 here. It says, in those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. <coughs> so I admonished them on the day that they sold food. Also, men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise. They sold them as the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing but profaning the Sabbath day? So Nehemiah comes and looks around. He saw all these people working on the Sabbath. They weren't, they weren't sneaking around doing this. They're, they're out in the open. They were just neglecting the Sabbath. This was, this was an external indicator of an internal problem. No longer were they honoring the Sabbath by you know, growing their families, spending time in God's Word, and remembering his faithfulness to them, they're just looking for the next business opportunity, trying to make another dollar. So these merchants from Judah were knowingly breaking the Sabbath. Now these these outsiders from Tyre that were coming in and importing this stuff, no one really expects them to keep the Sabbath. They're they're not Jewish, but the people in Jerusalem were still buying from them. They were still breaking the Sabbath by buying from them. So they were breaking the Sabbath both by selling and by supporting the foreigners. So again, this looks, we need to look towards this as a heart problem. Their heart was far from God, and that's why they were acting like this. Instead of focusing on God, growing their families, and resting on the Sabbath, they were just advancing themselves. But how much of our society is the same that work first, money first, God's second mentality? <clears throat> we, do what, we do what has to be done first, right? 
we, we want to take care of everything on our list and then just kind of give God our leftover time, whatever's left over. Not just on Sunday, like, like we're talking about here, but everything. Our jobs, our responsibilities, even our families and, and our activities can become so important. We get so laser-focused on that that we lose our eternal perspective of what the big picture is. I'm not confident. I struggle with this. I get so caught up in my responsibilities, they just take over my day. You try, to, you try to get everything done that's on your list and then just kind of squeeze a little God time in at the end of the day. That's not what God has for us. Israel was letting their business and their daily lives take over and they weren't allowing any time for God. I pray that our lives, that we would be seeing our time all of it belonging to God. That we let His Word, that we let His work dictate our priorities. The Sabbath is what set Israel apart by showing their devotion to God and displaying that He had ownership of their entire lives. But their actions followed the state of their heart. They chose to work for their own gain versus working to obey God. They chose to keep their money and to build their wealth versus fund the work of God. So we've looked at forsaking the purity of the temple, the tithe, and the Sabbath. And now we're going to see them forsaking their covenant against mixed marriages. If you look at verse 23, it says, In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod and in Moab. As for the children, I spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. <coughs> the commandment that they all heard from God, that it was referenced at the beginning of this chapter, and that they had all promised to keep, it was just now from that. They broke their covenant with God. And they were reverting back to these mixed relationships. Again, it's not a race issue. These people were against God, but they were against Israel and everything that they were supposed to be standing for. But Israel continued to struggle with intermingling with these people. They refused to devote their personal and their family lives to God. <clears throat> and just like they're commanded, we're commanded as believers not to marry an unbeliever. So the Bible church, kind of church term that we use is unequally yoked. And it's referring to a team of animals working together. So if one is, is old and sick and the other one is strong, if one is bigger than the other one, they're working against each other more than they're working together. We see this in 2 Corinthians 14-17. It says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have, has righteousness and lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with darkness? For what harmony has Christ with Belial? For what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? For what agreement has the temple of God with idols? If we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from the midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. So that's a that's comparatively, that's really similar to what God wanted for Israel. Is what He wants for us here. But it begs the question: Says, what does righteousness and lawlessness have in common? What does light and darkness have to do in the same place? The answer is nothing. It's an impossible combination. It's vital for us as Christians in our community to be working together. You must not pursue a relationship if the other person is not a believer. I mean, teens and singles. Who are you pursuing a relationship with? What's your qualifications whom the person you're looking for? This, this qualification has to be at the very top of the list. Israel didn't follow this command. 
and it pulled him away from God, and it rendered him useless for his work. The commandment is clear. Don't pursue marriage with someone that will not worship God with you. Israel had fought hard to rebuild the walls and restore Jerusalem, but they're quickly falling back on what caused them to fall away in the first place. They'd allowed sin to come in, and they're so intertwined with the pagans that they just gave up on following God. As a result, their children weren't being raised to follow God either. They didn't know Hebrew, and what that, what that tells us is they didn't know the law. The parents weren't teaching them the law. They weren't teaching them the scriptures. They were getting no spiritual leadership at home because there was no spiritual commitment even at the marriage relationship. Israel had become so mixed in with the world that there was no difference between them. How often do we step back and look at how much the culture around us is affecting us and defining who we are, the choices we make, rather than looking to God for those standards? I think it could be confusing because we fuse those two, our society and our Christian side, we fuse them so close together that the lines get blurred between them. We think, well, what's the biblical thing to do? What's this, this good Southern Republican thing that we're all supposed to be here to? We hold on to our views so tightly because that's just what we're surrounded by. That's what's popular around us. And some of them even go against God's principles. But we have to saturate ourselves with God's word. We have to surround ourselves with his people, like-minded believers, to make sure that our views are lining up with his word. Everything that we do should be lined up and looked through with the gospel lens. So I encourage y'all, take some time to evaluate your life and just how you look at different things in your life. What's shaping it? What outside influences are affecting it? And what does the Bible say about those things, that you, just those views that you have? We've seen how Israel failed their covenant with God. But now we're going to look at the points of restoration and how Nehemiah responded to them. So it's clear throughout all this that Nehemiah was passionate for God's holiness, isn't it? He wanted them to follow God. He wanted them to be holy. He wanted them to be set apart. Think of, think of all the work he had put in, right? He dedicated his entire life to this, to make this journey, to to conquer this task that seemed impossible and then to seek out work in these people's lives and just turn this whole place around and he's now just seeing it crumble to pieces just threatening to go back even worse than it was before <clears throat> look at verse 7 it says and i came to jerusalem and learned about the evil that elisha had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of god it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all Tobias' household goods out, in, out of the room. Then I gave an order that they cleanse the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. The very first thing he does is get Tobias out of the This is the most obvious action to take, wasn't it? He's from a family that was able to prove their heritage is a Levite. He was an Ammonite, and he was clearly not supposed to be in there, especially to live there. Tobiah had to go. So what does he do? He comes in, and he just immediately just takes all of his stuff and just throws it out on the road like trash. Does this, this remind me of anything? My mind immediately went to when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. He says he's chased people out because they, 
with the abomination that they had turned his father's house to, turning it in his house of prayer into a den of thieves. Sounds exactly like what's going on here, doesn't it? Just what a passion and zeal for God's holiness that Nehemiah and Jesus have. So what they do is they, they purify the rooms, they rededicate them back to God, they put the utensils back, so they set the temple back up for worship, and then they set it up for the tithes to be restored. Also, and we'll look at verse 11 here. It says, So I reprimanded, reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their post. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. So before he restores the tithe back, he's got to go find these people and bring them back in, right? The temple workers are out there working in the field, providing for their families. And again, just, just faced with this reality, but why is God's house forsaken? But once he gets them back into place, the word gets out, the tithes begin to come back in, and Nehemiah sent some people that are trusted, that the people could trust, to handle the tithes. So he's dealt with the impurity of the temple, then he's dealt with restaffing the temple, but now he's going to go after their hearts when he goes to restore the Sabbath. First, he says he admonishes those throughout selling and working on the Sabbath. He goes and he encourages them to do what's right, to follow God, to honor the Sabbath, right, right there when they're in the middle of working. But then he goes back to the leadership and it says he reprimands them. Verse 17 says, Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil that you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same? Our God brought us in all the city, all this trouble. Yet you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So he's just calling them evil, evil. He's calling this sin for what it is. I just picture him like, grabbing these hands and shaking back with their sins. It's like, what are y'all doing? Y'all remember any of this that we just went through? This national revival? This confession of our, our nation's sins from the past? This commitment to God that we made? Like, where is all this gone? And he said, you're adding to the wrath of Israel. They're just asking for more, more punishment. This, this cycle of disobedience and punishment, they're just getting right back into it. They wanted so badly to be out of that, and they're walking right back into it. Then I love what he does next here in verse 19. He goes, he goes out to the wall the night before the Sabbath, and he just shuts the city down. So these walls were for, were for keeping out the enemies of God, right? For protecting them, and that's exactly what he's using them for. He set up trusted men to make sure that nobody was bringing business during the Sabbath. He was serious about this. But the merchants, what they do, they, they kept coming up. It says they were somewhere even spending the night out there, like kind of like a reverse Black Friday kind of thing. And he tells them, I'm sure you don't want to hear this from your mom, like, don't make me come down there kind of thing. Like, he's about to look these guys. He's prepared to, to fight these guys off. That's how serious he was. He didn't want any temptation, any, any opportunity for sin, for disobedience to gain a foothold over these people. He loved them and he wanted them to see them turn back to God. So he, he makes us the Levite's responsibility and sets us in order that they're going to do this on every Sabbath. And just think, so he's putting safeguards in place, right? And just think, what... What safeguards do you have in your life? What are, what are you doing to prevent sin, that temptation? What are you doing to prevent and putting a safeguard in place for sin that you face? 
So now we see even more of an escalation from Nehemiah after this, taking on the, the sin of the mixed marriages. There's six different actions listed here in 25 through 30 that Nehemiah took to ensure the purity of their faith. First thing it says that he continued with them. He wasn't there to give them a pep talk. He was there to give them a fight. He wanted to fight for the holiness of God. And that is always worth fighting for. In verse 25 just says he also he cursed them. He's calling their attention to God's blessing and saying how by their sin, they're calling this curse upon themselves. The third thing he does is says that he struck them. The fight actually got physical. And depending on the severity of this, he could have even had some people killed. It says he pulled out their hair, not just the hair on the, on the top of their head, but even their facial hair. And Pastor Cody pointed this out. This was, this was what the Babylonians did when they, when they took over Israel. They did this to the Israelites. So he's almost doing this as a symbol and as a reminder. Do you remember this? Do you remember how bad it was? Is this really what you want to go back to? Nehemiah is on an absolute rampage against sin. He's consumed with the holiness of God. And he's treating the sin with such heaviness that Israel had just been so lax about it. They let him sneak up on him and just take him over. He wanted them to see how important this really was. It says that he made them swear. He wanted them to re-promise this covenant. He wanted to ensure that they were going to obey God. But then he draws their attention to Solomon. So Solomon was, was their hero, right? He had, Solomon had even built this temple. He's known as the wisest man to ever live. He was a great king of Israel. But even he failed in this regard of mixed marriages. He married many foreign women and they brought their pagan gods with them. And it caused Solomon to fall away from God. And eventually it split the nation of Israel right down the middle. And he's saying, if, if Solomon couldn't resist this, what makes you think that you're any better than him? And then lastly, it says that one of the sons of Joiada, this was a relative of Samuel and Elisha, he personally just had to run him out of town. He was removing the potential threats and distractions for the future. And we should do the same in regards for our sins. So after all this contention, after all this strife between them, he just goes back to God in a short prayer. He just asks God to take care of it. He says, Remember them for what they did, how they've defiled this and broken their covenant. And he just gives it back to God, leaving the results back to him. So with all these acts of restoration, what does that really tell us? I think the first thing I noticed was just how Nehemiah grasped the gravity of this thing. Nehemiah was walking with God. He, he was in tune with him. He was in tune with God's holiness. And the same is gonna be for us. The closer that we get to God, the more God's going to produce that love and that passion for Him in our lives, but it's also going to create a hatred for sin. And we're going to build separation from those barriers like Nehemiah put up. Galatians 5.24, this is the fruit of the Spirit. The things that God produces in our lives as Christians, that, that life. But then it also tells us that those that are in Christ have crucified the flesh with His passions and desires. This is a battle. It's a confrontation. And it's very serious. We are to put sin to death. The closer we get to God, the more disgusted we're going to be at this sin. But how do you see sin? Are you like Elijah and just harboring sin? Are you like Israel that is so, so intertwined with the world that you're just numb to it? 
are we like Nehemiah, who's walking with God and wants us to see sin eradicated for his glory? So after the, after these acts of restoration, chapter just kind of ends pretty abruptly. Book two. And um, before we close, I just want to see one more thing, and that's Nehemiah's response. So after th three of these restoration acts, we see Nehemiah pray just a short prayer to God. Um, we'll read the last one here in 30 and 31. It says, Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task, and I arranged for the supply of wood at the appointed times for the first fruits. And it says, Remember me, O my God, for good. So we see similar, similar prayers in verse 14 and 22. When I first looked at this chapter, I really didn't know what to do with these prayers. It's like, is Nehemiah trying, trying to gain favor with God? Is he trying to show, hey, God, look at me because I'm so good? But the more I read, the more I began to kind of see the context of this and kind of get his heart and how he really felt. What I see in, in Nehemiah is a man that's just defeated. He's depressed and he's alone in his zeal for God. He'd done, he done everything he could to get these people straight and it just wasn't working. He felt like a failure. But what didn't waver was, was his desire to please God and to obey. Even if the whole nation turned their back, he wanted to be counted as standing with God. He didn't want to be piled on with everybody else going the wrong way. He wanted to do right, even if it meant he was standing alone. He didn't let what others were going to say, think, or do change. He just cared ultimately what God thought of him. Not about how history would remember him, but about how God would remember him. About having that right standing before his creator. He just had, he had a love for God. He had a love for his word and for his work. And that's what got in his life. And he just trusted God for every reason behind his actions. And in church, only with a view like that are we going to be successful Christians. We're not going to be those, those passionate servants for God if we're not just zeroed in and focused on Him. And this is going to lead us to remaining faithful to His work and His service throughout our life. So when we see the contrast between the heart of Israel and the heart of Nehemiah, what's, what's really the difference? To me, it's, it's follow through, right? Israel said a lot of right things, but they made compromises where God gave very clear but what, what was the answer for Israel now? Like they messed up. The beauty of it is the answer was still the same. This, this restoration that God had brought, that's still the same answer for them. God wanted them to repent. He wanted to restore them back to himself. It's that spiritual renewal that they needed. But it wasn't, it wasn't this one time we're gonna sign this paper and we're gonna be good. It was this daily decision to follow after God. That's what they needed. This wasn't the first time or the last time that they would disobey God, but God was still there for them. He was still faithful. When I think of this entire book and just the story and the lessons we can learn, you just see, I'm just overwhelmed by God's grace. This entire book, it's not, it's not just about God restoring the walls around Jerusalem. It's about God restoring the hearts of his people and calling them unto himself. He gave them chance after chance. But just like us, they, they fell short. They needed, they needed something better. And eventually God was going to provide that money. He used them to bring forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was going to offer a perfect cleansing. 
So Nehemiah cleansed the temple, he cleansed the people with all these actions, he tried to restore them to God. That's only a temporary covering, right? Jesus offers us that perfect sacrifice that can, that can take away our sins. And this is exactly what he offers freely to each and every one of us. Isn't he worthy? Doesn't he deserve our devotion and our obedience to God?